Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we're discussing Chapter 4 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Stephanie Oldfield, university graduate majoring in psychology and English. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Steph for joining me. Thanks for having nice me. Nice to be here. Great to be here. <laughs> So chapter four is quite meaty and uh, I think starting with uh, just the first half of this chapter up to where we talk about the future is what we should cover this podcast and do the second half of it in the next podcast just so we don't uh, make it make it a very complicated rush through the job. So sure. I'm going to start with where Spensky starts and he's talking about in what direction would the fourth dimension lie? He starts by saying, referring to chapter 3, and he's saying, we've established by comparison the relation of lower dimensional figures to higher dimensional ones, and um, that it is possible to regard a fourth dimension, uh, sorry, a four-dimensional body as the tracing of the motion of a three-dimensional body upon the dimension not contained in it. And there's a lot of words in that. So I think I'd like to start with, what does he mean by that? I'm going to start with you, Steph. <laughs> Well, to me, and again, this is purely my interpretation. I <laughs> my opinion. I I really like this chapter. Actually, it's it was definitely one of my favorites. Um, I think what he's talking about there is when we talk about each dimension, we talk about how that relates to to us in the world and how that relates into the world itself. What can it do? What are the features it has? You know, on a philosophical level and also an empirical level, how does it function? Um, and what I find really interesting here, it's the idea that we have things like we have motion, we have our assumptions, our beginnings, and, and all of those things which we've spoken about in the previous chapters there. But how could we even possibly understand what's beyond that? What is there that also lies beyond? And how can we say what to expect, what to think of when we are still trying to figure out where we are in this dimension, if that makes sense? Okay, yeah. so Pete, what what what's your what's your thoughts of this tracing um, of the motion of a three dimensional body upon the dimension not contained in it? Well, we looked in chapter three at this idea of tracing, and it's very difficult to go beyond that. Uh, in as much as we talked about a point extending in one direction and becoming a line, a line can then extend its length to give us a plane, and the plane can then extend, let's say, in height. And I'm, I mean, it can go in any direction, but I'm just using that to explain the three. And then we end up with what he calls a solid. It doesn't have to be solid. I mean, we can, we can talk about air having these extensions, um, for example, or liquid having these extensions, um, which is fine. We can't imagine uh, an extension beyond those three. The idea that um, extension then has to be 
something not contained within means that we've got to have an extension whereby the the object in the third dimension is going in a direction that is not conceivable in these extensions that we talked about, the extension of a point, a line, and a plane. We can't even begin to, to, to talk about a direction uh, when, we are, when we're stuck in talking about three dimensions. We can't speak about direction. Direction would imply either the, the motion um, or the extension <clears throat> of a point or of a line or of a plane. There are no other possible extensions available to us. So what he could possibly mean by that is very, very difficult to understand from that quote that you just gave us, because we need to we need to go beyond that then and say, yes, well, we accept that um, we know that extension has to take place from one dimension to another only by using the available extensions that we can conceive of. Now we're in pure guesswork. We're in the realm of guesswork. And so the idea of an extension of a three-dimensional object in a, in a direction that's not contained within the object is, well, this is where we, we come on to the problem of this chapter, which is why he has this chapter, isn't it? Yeah, and I think what you mentioned before we started, is, and I agree with you, I think Aspensky doesn't explain things so well in this chapter. If he flipped this chapter to a few chapters along because the next couple of chapters I think set more of a scene for this whereas this is sort of uh it's coming in without a bit of a basis but I think well even what is I mean I even think that he, he doesn't give us um very good um analogies and metaphors for this either in this chapter I think he struggles to even explain what he's trying to think um it, you, you can feel it the the previous chapters it's very, very easy to extrapolate from his examples and his analogies exactly what he means. You can actually picture what he means. These ones, he struggled, I feel. And it was very, very difficult um, to get what he wants. Now, you, you're quite right in saying um, that this becomes much clearer in subsequent chapters. But here we are with chapter four, and we've got to deal with this. What is he saying? So we need to move on. We need to move yep. on to the next point. So he does say, and I will quote what he says, what direction is it? So he does give us a bit of a, a, a sense of what he's talking about. And he's saying that we know that every motion in space is accompanied by what we call a motion in time. So everything that moves or doesn't move, it has a time associated with it, that, that we know that there's a before, a now and an after associated with it. Now. This is this is one of the difficulties here, because then we talk. He talks. He uses what we don't know is Russian, so I don't know what the translation is here. Because I can imagine that this is a very difficult translation. When he talks about motion in regards to time, motion is a word where you would instinctively see extension, um, extended motion. You'd see going from here, one place and then looking somewhere else to the place where where motion ends up. Um, it's very, very difficult to conceive of time having motion in that sense. It's an interesting word to use. I know what he means instinctively. We go from 10 o'clock in the morning to midday. 
and time is said to have moved through that, those two hours. Well, how many people actually talk about the motion of time? We said so we talk about the passing of time, but passing then contains um, an idea of time itself within its description. So, yeah, you and that's a that's definite no-no in philosophy. You you you, you can't you can't dis explain and describe something by using the thing that you're describing itself to describe itself. So we're 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 stuck here. Motion motion and passing. I'm going to ask you in a second, Steph, but I just want to um, just segue into that because he says that the idea of motion or the idea of um, the absence of motion is indissolubly bound up in the idea of time. That's what he is saying. And where he says this, he says, any motion or absence of motion proceeds in time and cannot proceed out of time. Consequently, before speaking of what motion is, we must answer the yeah, question. Yeah, but he's talking there about the motion. He's talking there about the motion of objects, uh, yes. or the or the absence of motion in them. I'm on about the, the use of the word motion with relation to time. He talks about time having motion, and I'm saying that that's a very awkward word to use with relation yep, to time. It's passing. Steph, what do you think? I think the way it came to me was. When I read, I so I've read it a few times because it is very dense, <laughs> and you know it's very possible we're all going to have three completely different interpretations and all be wrong, all be right, or some combination thereof because it is very dense and confusing. For me, the thing I got probably through the second reading was I initially thought like you, Peter. He was talking about motion in the sense how I would use the term motion, and I use the term motion to say, oh, there's essentially a movement. Starting at one point, ending at another, there is some sort of movement. But what I actually think here is what he's talking about is not necessarily a movement, just a change in some sort of sense in that case. Not in the sense of like, oh, we can feel, touch, and so speak, just that, but in the way that our earth changes, our time changes in that way. So the way he uses motion, for me, I thought was maybe more of a the way it's existing in time is because it is always changing. We are always having light changes. Therefore, we are, it's always in motion. My problem with that is the use of the word. I, I wasn't, I mean, I agree with what you say and I can interpret it that way. And, and I do interpret it that way. I'm just saying that the use of this word motion doesn't help him. I, this is one of the reasons I'm saying if, if that translation is accurate, it's a demonstration of how he was struggling with this. How to, how to get a concept that he perhaps instinctively feels that he knows what he means, but language is, he's, he's finding it very, very difficult to find a language that can describe it. Um, I, 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 under, I, I understand it as being exactly what you just said, Steph, to be honest with you. That's exactly how I understand it. But when, we, when we're using the word motion, it brings an image into your mind and it's an image that we can't conceive of time as being. And that's why we, that's why we do in, in English, we use the idea of the, the passage of time, not the motion of time. And, and it, it's not a subtle difference. It's a very specific difference. And this is why we talk about it in that way to differentiate it from motion as being ob objects going from one location to another location. Mm. And that's what I was saying. Yeah, what you're sort of saying too is it's that idea that uh, for something to be emotion, it's almost like it's a very clear change. It's something yeah. you can see, feel, and stuff. But mm. we don't, you know, we don't feel the <laughs> earth rotating. We, unless no. you're sort of watching a sunset or something, or you're looking at the sun, you wouldn't be able to go, oh, I can feel that time 
physically no, moving. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think that's where I do. it comes undone. And yeah. we haven't even got to this idea yet of um, we we define the absence of motion in terms of time. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when you look at any object, if, if you took, let's say, if you took an animal or, or, or something organic and it died, well, there it is. It is not moving, but you will be able to see it decompose. You will actually understand the passing of time by the degree of decomposition of, an, of, a, of that object. But, but likewise, once you understand that, you can understand that an object that doesn't readily decompose, certainly not within our lifetimes, like a rock, let's say a piece of granite, a building. You know, yes, there will be um, entropy at some point in, in every material object, but geologically, uh, it's going to take an inconceivable amount of time for a lump of granite to decompose. Yet it is still passing through time. You know, we, the idea of time, we, we couldn't even conceive of it without the conception of time, even though it's just sitting yeah. still. No, so we'll 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 um, excuse him that maybe the, the yeah, I'm excusing him. I think it's really difficult. Yeah. I just think it's really yeah. difficult. And and perhaps in Russian that word was different. Who knows? As yeah, you said. under the 1920s, language adapts, it evolves. Yeah. So you know, it could be yeah. completely different then. <laughs> so so what he says is okay. Before we we look at this, before we look at what motion is, let's look at the question of what is time. And he goes straight to his old friend Kant which he seems to uh, hang his hat on quite a bit. And this is what he says. Kant regards time as he does space, as a subjective form of our receptivity, i.e. he says that we create time ourselves as a function of our receptive apparatus for convenience in perceiving the outside world. And he leads this into saying how we only see the outside world through our senses and we, we create time because we're seeing a slit through it, as if we're seeing things through a slit as opposed to we're seeing the whole scene and 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 the chapter sort of opens up from there. So uh, I, I think it's very interesting what he's saying here because I think when we look at time, it's something we use to order things. We put things in a, in an order. That was in the past. That's in the present. That's going to happen in the in the future. But I can conceive of time. I can think about the future. I can think about the past. But in reality, I can't grasp it. I can't put my hands on it. I can't show it to you. I can tell you about it, but I can't show it to you. So it's a time is it 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 is a construct we make to maybe it's part of language. Maybe it's because of our restrictions of language. So I'm going to throw it over to the floor. Who would like to go first? I'll, I'll... Well, I think if it's okay if I go first, I do you think go. that that's, <laughs> I do think that's true. And I, I always look, it's funny because this one really made me reflect on how I view the concept of time. And I've always known it has that subjective beginning. It was created, you know, by essentially by man. It was named by man. You know, they were the first ones to say, oh, okay, well, now we've got 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and, you know, all the way back around, and seconds, minutes, hours, years. That was all sort of man-made, so to speak, man-labeled. Um, but it's interesting because it is such a, a forceful guide that people use in their everyday lives. 
you know, we look at time and when you do take it away, I really had to stop and think and, you know, how, how would that change how we exist? How would that change how the world around us exists? You know, if you were in a blacked out room without a sense of the construct, without any sort of way to name or physically, you know, identify, you know, whether it's the numbers or whatever it is, what the time was and how you would react in that, how those things around you relate to that, how would it change? And I found it to be quite a scary thought because I think it would be really intense without it being there. And I know in this chapter, he he really digs deep into this idea that it's, you know, very much, it, it is just, it's almost like it's just something there floating that we take and individualize to make sense of. And, I think too, yeah. getting later, he talks about two types of time as well. Yeah. There's clock time. Yeah. And there's this... This idea of, of like universe time. time, like do you know what I mean? That's a universe and dimensions, and that sort of, yeah, it it is a really interesting construct to sort of think about. And to be honest, it's given me many a headache <laughs> because it is really hard to get through. It's very dense, but it's also very interesting because, especially when you consider in our lives how reliant we are on time, how reliant we are on getting up, getting things done, having meals, everything we do is based around this construct. And if it wasn't there at another dimension, how would, what would be there? What would change? How would we react? What else would be there? What else would be available? What else would be possible? Pete, your thoughts? I don't have any. <laughs> could, you, could you find some in time? I can. <laughs> well, I, I can. Um... I'm not, I'm not um, as as interested in how we split time up and how we how we work it into a circle and 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 that time is based on circularity, which is why we have 60, 60 minutes and clock time and so on. I'm I'm more interested in the idea that we can't capture the past. Can we now? Can we? Um, uh, to no. what degree? To what degree can we not? Well, what happens now with the advent of photography, audio, and video recording? Well, we do actually, and this is sorry, Ali, I didn't know if you were going to speak. Um, please go ahead. <laughs> no, take on. Oh, okay, because it's actually <laughs> something I I wrote down in my notes. <laughs> I, um, because for me, time is a really big thing. Obviously, in, in my field, we do look at time, and in particular. We do look at, as I said, like how clock time relates to a different dimension, how they all look up. And in particular, the thing is memory, you know, without going too far off into that different field, the idea of, you know, memory is not linear. Time isn't linear in that sense. We have things like cameras, we have videos, we have, you know, audio recordings, all these things that we can look back on and, and everything but every time we listen to them, every time we process them, there is a change that occurs with that based on the other variables that are there. That could be environmental. That could be, you know, you might have experienced something else that changes your cognitive perspective on it. There might be another factor in the room, you know, and that will change how that works, how the present is, and that will ultimately then work into, you know, we're not going to go too far in the future, but the idea of the future. So I do think it is a really interesting thing because it is changing how, I guess, how it's accessed. Well, I think 
Take, for example, if, if you were in a car accident, if you've ever been in a car accident, how everything suddenly goes in slow motion. Or if you're having a really um, exciting day, how it goes so fast. Or if you are looking at the clock and waiting for the minute that, you know, go from 3.30 to 3.31 and you wait for that minute, it seems like it takes forever. So how is that? It's still, if you're, if you're cutting things up into discrete units, if that's, that's one sort of time, but if you're looking at time as the passing of past, present, future in this continuous stream of moments, why do some moments seem so long and some seem so short if it's not something we're constructing in our own consciousness? No, and, and that's it. I, I think, I guess, there is this idea that I've sort of come around to thinking about, which is it is, because, you know, when we don't focus on it, we don't notice that we focus on the other things that are happening. It seems to go a lot faster. When there's nothing else sort of there and we do think about it, we think about looking at the circular motion of the clock or we think about reflecting on that moment that happened in the past and how that relates to what's happening here and, and taking it out of its line, so to speak, and putting it somewhere else it seems a lot slower and a lot more crucial than it was if, as you said, we were having a great time, you have a party, you're not thinking about time, you're not looking at your watch, you're not looking at anything, and all of a sudden it turns around and you find out, oh, five hours are gone. But you just didn't yeah. realise because it's not your focus. Yeah. Well, let's let's move a little bit further along because he's, then, he's talking about the idea of time is caught up with the idea of causation, this is his words, causation and functional independence. So he says, what does functional independence mean? Well, I'm thinking that means the effect of some change. So if I do something, it creates some sort of effect. I, I, uh, I walk along the road, you know, I go from point A to point B. But he's saying that the idea of time is caught up in that because it's a continual stream of past going into present, turning into future, and that... He says that if the past is gone and the future's not here and we try and grasp the present, how do we say that the present really exists? Because as soon as it's the present, it's actually becoming the past or becoming the future. It's never it's never a point in time that we could say is the present. And the past is gone and the future's gone. So if you think about it in those terms, nothing really exists. But we know things do exist. So what... What is this idea of time when we look at it from that that point of view of that past, present, future uh, concept? And this is where he starts talking about maybe we're looking at things as though we're looking at a, a slit. So everything's happening at the same time, but we just see it as a slit. So we move from here to here to here to here, and we see that as a progression of moments, whereas the moments could be happening all at once, all at the same time behind the slit. What are your thoughts, Pete? Well, the idea of looking through the slit at time means that we are seeing time um, in a digital form. We're seeing it as separate little moments, just like you would cut a cake into separate pieces. If we do that with time, and if we, if we actually do that with matter, we're, we're in a whole parcel of problems because you should be able to capture it at that point. You, you can't though, because time is this continuum. The real problem we have, with, even with the slit, is 
what we perceive through the slit, we feel isn't illusory. We feel that we're actually seeing what's there right now. But this, the, the problem then is the definition of using past, present and future. Maybe there is the problem because we, we tend to put things into nice little neat categories. And we never really think about the present in terms of it being illusory and something that has to pass away the moment that it's created. Now there, this is where we, we come into the real issue. That slit that we are looking through, if we continue with his analogy here, is this, this idea that we're looking at, at something that exists. What we, what we see in the slit, it doesn't matter what we can and can't see beyond it, but we do really feel that we have to accept that what we are experiencing through this little slit of observation with every one of our senses has to be real. Whereas, by this definition of the, the future um, and the past are illusory, in other words, the moment that's, that the future hits that slit, it's already become the past, means that we can't use those three terms. We have to change the way that we, we use terminology to describe time in order to make any sense of it. And he's dead right in pointing this out. Because the logical conclusion of something that's happened immediately becoming the ungraspable past that no longer exists means that we can't actually believe in the existence of the present. The moment that you've perceived it, it's already gone. Literally the moment there isn't, you can't say, oh, there's a nanosecond where it's, where it's reality and then it goes. It literally does go. He does come on to this later on in this chapter. I don't want to go too too far ahead when we're talking about um, this this sort of the meniscus that, like you would say, on 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 a liquid or um, this unknowable limit to the boundary of something physical, which is a great that is a great analogy that he uses because the physics of the meniscus of a liquid does actually change. It's not the same as the physics that apply to the underlying liquid itself. And it's unknowable, it's ungraspable. And that doesn't help us to explain what time really is because we're still stuck with this idea of the past, the present, and the future. But the lot, he, think... he's, he, he's right when he, ex when he does say, literally just after this bit, that um, the logical conclusion of accepting past, present, and future in that way is that the present can't exist either. So that where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Exactly. And I think... He does do it, despite your your thinking he hasn't. I still think he has made some good analogies here when he talks about, well, the first one, he talks about the blind man with a stick. And he says to the blind man, the stick is sort of the extension of his senses. So as far as the stick goes, that's where he feels the world. And he's, he's relating that to this is, we, see, we just see, I suppose, it, it, as opposed to a slip, we might just see a small circle of existence around us and then everything else outside of that we, we negate as not existing. So he's sort of trying to make that time is something we are sensing as we're feeling it as we go along. And he talks about this with Vunt. He mentions Vunt later on. Um, but the other, and, I, and I'll, I want to explore this a bit further, the thing that he, that really made sense to me was when he talked about a traveller 
this analogy of the traveller where he says if the traveller is going from one city to another and he's halfway between the two, if he's stupid, a stupid traveller, he would think that he's left that town, that town no longer exists, it's in the past, it's gone, it's dropped, it's, it's, it's raised to the ground. And the town that he's going to is in the future, so it doesn't yet exist. So when he gets there, just before he gets there, it suddenly is, is populated and built. And that's, he's saying that's how we see time as a, once it's gone, it's not, the past is no longer there and the future is no longer there. But if he, he climbed a mountain, he could see the two towns existing at the same time. And in, in essence, it's his past, his present and his future all existing side by side. And so if you think about the slit, if, it, if you were looking on the ground, you would only see like the narrow slit where you are on the path but if you kite above the plane above that plane of consciousness is what he talks about later this is the analogy to you can see everything existing at the same time so that doesn't help I, us that, that that actually doesn't help us we've still got this problem about this concept of um the past the present and the future because the analogy is in terms of something that we can understand you, you rise above and you can see more. We're, we're quite happy in three dimensions to actually understand that that's quite possible. We're still not, it still doesn't help us explain the idea. I understand that we can conceptualize the idea that the past and the future must exist simultaneously with the present. Fine, great. I don't think the analogy uh, does a great job of explaining where the logic falls apart when we're talking specifically about how we conceive time. I, I really don't see. Um, we still can't conceive of time uh, as having simultaneous existence the way that we look at time. The analogies are still based on three-dimensional experience, which, which they are. It doesn't, it doesn't help us to get around the this, this seeming paradox of the idea that if the, the past has already faded into non-existence and the future hasn't existed yet, and that time... Is, and that the present is literally the experience of this passage of the future into the past, so that the, so that the, the present doesn't exist as of itself. It is only this immeasurable, and he uses this. We cannot measure the present, like the way that we feel that we can measure the the past and the future. We can't measure the present. We can say there uh, there has been the passage of a hundred years or a hundred years from now. What we can't say is anything with relation to the present. And that's what the 3D analogies don't help explain. And that, I, I understand what he's saying, uh, and, and it, is, it is getting us somewhere to, to understand that these things can, ex the, the future and the, and the past could potentially explain, uh, exist simultaneously and not fall out of, of existence just because we're not viewing them. I understand he's saying that, but it doesn't help us with the present. We still have this logical paradox that we can't measure the present, that so if the present can't exist, we need to move to that point. And that and a 3D example doesn't help us. He's struggling. It is, it is a real struggle with the present, where we are in the book at this, at this point. Yeah, it gets a lot easier to understand as we move on. But, but right here and right now, as we're explaining it, we, we are stuck with this horror of non-existence. So where do you think his point is? Like we, we know where he's going because, 
you know, we've read yeah, on. Yeah, I've read it. But, but at this point, what is he trying to give us? What part of the puzzle is he trying to give us? Why, I mean, I, why I, do we assume that there's a positivism here? Why are we assuming that he's trying to give us anything other than um, pointing out that we should actually re-examine our, our concept of time, which most people go through their lives not examining at all, just taking it for granted that there is a past. I think what he's doing is setting a stage where he can explain something that's outside of our sensory experience, which is what the rest of the book is all about, which is what most of the book is all about. I think he, all he's doing is, is giving us something to think about here, that there are logical paradoxes. Don't, don't necessarily assume that just because he, put, he posits a, a, a point in this book that it's got an explanation, that he's got the answer for it, because all I think he's doing here is pretty much what he says that Kant did in his book. It's like, hang on, uh, have you considered this, that we really have got a problem with the way that we go through our lives? Now, we do feel that we do have a life experience, so something is right about the way that we feel that we are perceiving it. What he's looking at now is the logic of our perception. And all he's doing yeah. is pointing out, pointing out to us that, that, we, that we can't assume a reality based on the things that we think are real or, or well, we don't think are real, that we experience without thinking about He's, he's, he's trying to make us look at that so that we can then have a platform to go on to things that we don't understand that we experience, but that we actually do, which, which, which is taking us much further into the book. But I'm not necessarily thinking that we have to try to look at his um, analogies and the points that he makes in terms of a positive outcome. I, I think sometimes he is pointing out to us that we need to go beyond the framework that we just accept if we're trying to discuss reality and that there has to be something as yet unseen behind the reality that we believe to be our existence. And that's, that's all I think he's doing. Anyway, I'll shut up now because I've said things, that same thing about eight times in that circular. No, argument. but it's an important point. So, And I, I do actually agree with you in, in terms of what I think he is trying to say, which is his idea that, you know, we can't just say, yep, the president is this moment, now that's gone, this moment, this moment, this moment, yeah. because then we would never get anything done. And we would literally, yeah. I think, probably... Oh, think, that's why I didn't get, you know. get anything done. <laughs> well, there's my new excuse. <laughs> you know, I think that's what he's sort of trying to say. I, I did yeah. find the analogies helpful, at least in my understanding of it, purely because I think and it was... I've got, again, I've got my notes because of who I am as a person. Um, the one I've got here after the uh, traveler analogy, because I found that really helpful to understand it, which is this idea that, yep, if I can't see that I'm no longer, it's no longer physically present to me, it doesn't exist. And then that thing that's no longer physically, that isn't currently physically present, doesn't exist, therefore here. Um, I found that really helpful to then understand what he goes on to say, which is this is why it's almost impossible if you put that into the past, present, future to try and conceptualize the future because there are so many different things that can work and come together and stuff to create a future that you can't plan for. There's an infinite number of possibilities of what it could and couldn't be, you know? So I think that was a, I, for me at least that the analogy did help in understanding that concept. Mm. I, my, my issue is that I, I'm quite happy to use the analogy to understand that the, the constant existence of the future and the past, 
I mean, yep, it works for me there. What it still doesn't do is tell me what this immeasurable moment of the present is. Because we do, we do have to conceptualize that, that there is change over time. And while he talks about the city already existing in the future and the city still existing in the past from our viewpoint way up here on the top of the mountain or floating high above, that's fantastic. However, we, all, we also understand that those cities are not frozen that somebody in that city in the future is likely to be building a new house or a new building or a high rise, and that something in the, the city in the past is decaying and falling apart or being demolished. The idea of change isn't explained there. So what we have is this multiple concept of past, present and future contained within those cities that we see. Unless the cities are static, and we are static at the top of the mountain, then all we've explained is, okay, these three things must exist, but we can't see how that relates to our experience of, uh, of our lives in, in three dimensions. We have, to, we have to actually include this passage of, of time and the idea of change being constant. If not, then all we're looking at from our high vantage point is not only a snapshot of what we're seeing below, but ourselves have, we have to be a snapshot, an immobile snapshot ourselves. We being, we representing the present in this analogy. And that, that's where I have a problem. I don't, I understand that it's great to, to show the absurdity of claiming that the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't exist, but we're still left with this horror of the present, which still can't exist in the analogy that's 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 the only thing where i have a problem with it yeah and i yeah you're right there of course because you know it is a hard concept for him to explain it's really difficult analogy cannot do that because we're you're using three-dimensional concepts to try and explain Mm. something fourth-dimensional what i did get from that though i think what he's trying to make us look at is that we are traveling upon a plane in one direction and we're calling that our existence like you know we're, if we're, we're looking at something at one level but that's that and if we equate that to our consciousness just just to sort of say or just say our consciousness is looking at this level and, and, and all these words don't really make a lot of sense because we're we're still compartmentalizing what i don't even haven't explained even what consciousness is and i don't, don't think anyone um, up to this point is but let's use the word consciousness that we see things on this level but what he's saying is when you rise above that level and look down from another level then you see a different perspective and I think this that's where he's trying to get to to say our level of consciousness from our, you know, our, our senses can see upon one plane in one direction but to be able to see another dimension, you would have to be able to rise above that plane because he talks about that later, being able to rise above it. And I think that's the only link is that when you go up into the mountains, that's the analogous to rising above a plane of consciousness and looking down, you see a different view. That's all I think he's but saying. But he's still, he he's still only, with, only with that analogy, is still only talking about the past and the future. He is not talking Absolutely. about the present. 
No, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll accept the analogy. I've got no problem. The analogy works perfectly well to explain the absurdity of thinking that the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't exist. Fine. Great. Well, we're still left. We're still we're still left with a really difficult problem that that um, the the one that says that we either exist or we don't exist, which is the present. And and right there, I know he does later in the chapter, but right there, we're discussing where we are now. Right now, those analogies do not address the present. And the present is the hard thing to because the present is the one thing we say. Yes, we can identify it. I smashed my hand down on this the air of the arm of this chair. Um, and that I'm doing that now, but I'm not. I mean, in any logical explanation of what's happening now, the moment anything happens, it's in the past. What we're not doing is explaining this present moment with, with any of these analogies. And it's almost like if we didn't know what comes in later in the chapter, you'd say that, oh, he's um, he's he's very, very... Um, wordy in explaining what we th we can already accept anybody can accept once it's pointed out the idea of going up on a mountain and then seeing the two cities either side i mean really anybody can because it's explained in in terms that we understand but nobody would understand the the present as not existing at that moment uh, and it's almost like he's dodging it but we know that he's not dodging it because we know, no, we know that, it comes, that later on it does i i'm i'm still stuck with where we are um there is no analogy that's explaining the present as far as we've got in this chapter. The present is the killer. And, and, it's, and, it's, no, and it's no good giving him a pass on this because before he gets to the analogies, he has been talking about those three pe periods of time, the past, the present and the future. And he's already explained that we have a problem. We have this logical paradox that none of them can exist. If we if we suggest that the future and the past don't exist, we have to logically accept that the present doesn't exist. And yet we know that this is a nonsense because that would mean nothing exists. And yet something does. And that's his point. I think that's his very point. He's saying it makes a nonsense. If we do that, if we say, yeah, I, yeah, analogy, I, know, I know, Alice, none of it but, exists. But, that's too easy. Um, he's still not. He's his examples still only address the past and the future. It's this. The analogies do not help us with the present. So, so the whole concept falls apart at that point. If you you cannot get somebody to conceive of something easy like oh, go up on a hill, see the city over there, see the other city in the future, and just completely ignore the third part of the equation, which is the present. Because let me let me put it another way, you can you can go up as high as you like, but what if your vision gets less and less and less the higher you go up? So that by the time you get to a point where you would be able to see the city in the past and the city in the future, you're blind, because that's what actually would happen. Well, I think because that's because that's where we're left. Okay, so what I what I think I wanted to say a minute ago was that. What he's pointing out is if, as you said, if the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't exist, logically the present doesn't exist and yet something exists, there must be something wrong with the way we see time. I mean, that, I think that's the point he's making. Yeah, I no, know. He's not I saying what, what is wrong. He's just saying, I think, I know. you know, if you're doing that, then start looking at how we view time. And he moves on to talk about we are moving on a plane in one direction and we consider that direction eternal and infinite. 
it then says, but the direction at right angles to it, those lines which are intersecting it, we don't recognise as eternal and infinite. So we, we are not looking at time in in any other direction than linearly, 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 in a linear way. <laughs> but, but what if there are lines of intersection with that line going at right angles? What what do we consider of those? We haven't we haven't even thought of those, and uh, that's where I think he's he's uh, he's proposing. Let's have a look at what time really is. It's not clock time. It has nothing to do with you know it's seven o'clock. I'm having my breakfast. That's that's not that's even more than a construct that, that our senses are doing. That's not even a subconscious contract construct. That's a you know something we've we've put into place aside from time i mean we call that time but that's clock time that's not time he's talking about he's talking about a different type of time the passing of time um to move forward with what he because we'll, we'll get get through a little bit further to where he's getting to because it's getting to the more the more the interesting stuff he says the consciousness that isn't bound by the um, conditions of sensuous receptivity. So the consciousness that isn't bound by our five senses can outrun the stupid traveller and climb the mountain to see everything existing at once. This is where he's saying that that a consciousness that can rise above the consciousness that we have can see things differently. Um, he says that... Uh, it can rise above the plane of time and see the spring behind the autumn ahead and see simultaneously the budding flowers and ripening fruits. So I guess Pete, um, he still hasn't explained the, mo the present moment, I get that, but he's inching, he's inching towards I know. something. And, it's, and he's bringing in a concept that is as ungraspable from, from this perspective as the present moment, this idea of... This is almost like inventing a black hole to describe the space in the cosmologist's blackboards where the two things that they do prove can't come together. He's now, he's now brought in this idea of this unknowable, ungraspable form of consciousness that we need to be able to actually grasp the idea of time from a different perspective. Is, I'm going to ask a question. Is that helpful? Because we're still stuck with something that we can't grasp. In from from the way I've, I I read that, we we're having to bring in something. It might you might as well call it a unicorn, uh, you know, to use my old and tired analogy. You can call it whatever you like, but we have we have to invent something that that we can't grasp uh, and and experience in the way that we are experiencing everything else. So we we've exchanged one imponderable for another imponderable. Tell me your thoughts. I mean, I guess it it depends on who on what you think as an individual, if it's if it's useful or not. And I mean, I think that's what you you seem to be getting at. You know, I'm only looking at it from the logical point of view, Steph. It's just pure logic <laughs> at this point, <laughs> mathematical logic. Hmm. And it, you know, I guess yeah. I guess well, I guess my answer is it depends on, I guess the person and, and how you act. To me, I think it is useful. I think. You know, the idea of time, whether you're meaning clock time, universe time, you know, this idea of past, present, and future, whatever, to me, in, in you know, my interest and, and in my field, that's what guides our cognitions and behaviors. 
So it is really, really helpful to actually have this ideas and, and try and grasp, even if it's something you can't grasp, but try and look at it and question, would that be helpful or not? So, yeah, I'm not, you that's, not what I'm, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying is, well, I, I understand that it's valuable to look at this. I'm, that's not what I'm saying at all, that it's not valuable to look at it. I'm asking if it's helpful to use something else that we absolutely cannot grasp to explain something that we absolutely cannot grasp. We, we know that the, the present moment is the imponderable and then to, and then to just like um, throw in, oh, but if we put in something else that you can't grasp or know about, i.e. this extra form of consciousness that, that can rise above everything and see it all, don't worry, it's all okay. Um, I'm asking if it's useful to to replace one unknowable to describe one unknowable thing by bringing in this this also unknowable thing. Let me let me give you a, a, an, an example of where that works uh, in in our world. You take the novels of Agatha Christie. Everybody that reads them, and you might not read them, but people that do always like to look at the clues. They try to find out these little clues that she supposedly puts in throughout the story so that you can work out who done it before the, before the final chapter. What you find with Agatha Christie is that she cheats. She will then come out and give you a bit of information to, that, that the, the detective then uses to point out who done it and, it, and he uses information that she hasn't given you through the book. She throws something in there that you couldn't have known. And, and this is a bit like that. You know, it's like, okay, we're trying to find out who done it, who done this present moment. And I'll tell you what, let's talk about it and we'll make it very complex so that we can have big discussions about it. But I'm going to throw in consciousness that you couldn't have grasped from anything else that I've previously said. And you still can't grasp it because I'm talking about consciousness that's going to be something that we don't know about, a form of consciousness that goes beyond our five senses, is, is the idea that he's giving us here. Well, what's that? And that, I mean, and I, and I do know that that's what this book is all about, but he's throwing it in now, and I don't think that it, it, it's helpful to try and explain an unknowable by using an unknowable. That, that's the point that I'm making on that. I do accept that we, it is, this is a question that must be asked from a point of view of cognition, and it must. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to ask it. I'm just saying that that doesn't help us explain it. Uh, um, I wonder. I wonder. Yep. It. Well, you asked me what I thought, and I'm going to tell you. <laughs> this is what I think. Is it helpful? It has been helpful to me. And it hasn't answered the question. But here it has been helpful to me to look at an analogy and go, okay, I'm very used to just thinking about the past, present and future as a sequential thing. That past is gone, present, here I am talking to you guys, that's the present and that's the future. And that's fine. Putting an analogy in where, he, to me, the stupid traveller analogy really clicked. Now, it, it doesn't explain anything about fourth dimension at this point, but it made me think hang on a second, the past isn't just something that's intangible. If I leave a city, it is in the past. It's, it's, a, it's a construct that I have that is in the city is in the past. And he's using it to say, well, if the city's in the past and you think the past doesn't exist, then the city doesn't exist. And we all know that's stupid. 
we all know that that's a stupid thing to think. So that made me start thinking, well, what what am I really understanding about the past, present and future? And that's where it, has, it was useful to me, just to start okay. opening my mind into something else. And when he talked about the slit, I, I remember as a kid having um, on the back of the cornflake box, there was a, a thing you could cut out and it was a tiger and a lion in a cage. And if you had the bars... When, when they were um, on this side of the, when you pulled it this way, you saw the tiger. And when you pulled it the other way, you saw the lion. You know, I don't know if you ever saw those things. And as a kid, that fascinated me. Oh, there's the lion. And you pulled it the other way. There's the tiger. But in fact, the lion and the tiger were existing in the same spot. It was just how I saw them um, through the slit. It just brought that to me. And I thought, how am I looking at things? When he talks about rising above as a, as a form of consciousness, yeah, I can't, I can't grasp that. I don't know what a consciousness is, let alone... No, and he doesn't doing... explain it, and he doesn't explain it either. That's that's my point. He's using something that he, he can't explain or doesn't bother to explain at that point to 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 explain something that he can't explain. He's, he's just... He's thrown the unicorn in. The other thing is, and I, this is an interesting one, Steph, and I want to ask you this from a point of view of cognition. Now, we're, we're getting wrapped up in the analogy of the city, and that's that's great, and it's a, you know it's it's an analogy to use. But we're starting to say um, at some point that it's so useful that wow, that's a great. Who in life ever leaves home and thinks that when they get on the bus that their home never doesn't exist? Many. We don't. That's his don't. exact point. That's his exact point. He said, if that's what you really thought, you'd be stupid. So why? What, what is our concept of the past? Yeah, is it- yeah, I know, and, and and that's why the the idea of we we've been talking about the the, the two cities uh, as though like this is the great explanation, and that really isn't the great explanation because we don't think like that. And he's right; we're not stupid travelers. We, but that's we a great assume- explanation of of the fact that that's so stupid. But when we look at it, if we if we really thought past, present, and future were in a line then that uh, that should make sense, but it doesn't make sense. So what, what are we missing? No. That's, I think that's his very yeah, point. What have we missed yeah, in that concept And that's our paradox, isn't it? Yeah, so that's, that's all I think he's getting at. We have something that doesn't make sense in the way we construct time. So well, this is what I'm getting to, is that the, 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 the point of, the, of rising above the, sit, uh, the cities and seeing them actually points out the absurdity of our contradictory um, viewpoints uh, about reality and time, that we understand the reality is that the two cities are still there. Um, But we also conceive time in a way that one of them shouldn't, well, neither of them should be there. And And yet we exist quite comfortably with these massively contradictory ideas as our reality. And I think that's the point that's actually being made with the analogies that we live in. We, we live with with these contradictions and without both parts of the contradiction, we can't conceive of how we we're actually living. A hundred percent agree with you. And I think that's his whole point. And, and he yeah. uses analogy all the way up to a certain point and he goes, yeah, analogy is great. But what has it given us? Exactly what you said. Yeah, what does it absolutely. give us um, other than something to think about? And so he, so he then moves past this and he says, okay, well, if we think we've got something wrong with the way we're thinking, let's have a look at 
what we, what we consider time as. Let's let's have a really good look at it. And he he says that the the place to start is our concept of the future. So he says we all accept at this point. This is where he starts from. Obviously, they all accept the past is gone, the present is now, but there are lots of different theories about the future. How does the future? Uh, how is it constructed? Is it something preordained or is it something random? What is it that makes the future unfold um, in, in the way it does? And that's what we're going to continue with in part two. It's a little teaser. <laughs> cliffhanger. <laughs> a cliffhanger. I, I uh, made a few notes as to what he talks about in the rest of the chapter and I'll, as an extra teaser. He does go into the theories of the future. He talks about the relation of the past, present and the future. And then he talks about two ideas of time. He says that there are two concepts of time. And then he goes into something a little bit, as you say, useful, probably not. But he talks about understanding the fifth and the fourth dimension. But he does ask two questions. And I think these two questions are going to be quite uh, pivotal. Why does there exist in the world illusory motion? That's question one. And question two is, why can't consciousness extend that slit? Why are we looking through, if we are looking through a slit, and that's what our consciousness does, why can't it expand that slit? Two very, very good questions. And not to forget, he talks about that concept of um, surface tensions between, the analogy of a surface tension being the surface between two dimensions um, and brings in Hinton again, one of, another of his favourite quotes. So their, their next, uh, next podcast is going to be quite uh, riveting, shall we say. Yeah, and then there's obviously um, causation as well that comes into the oh. next chapter. So we're, it, we're going to be... <laughs> yeah, this is going if, to be if fun. You, if you thought we got stuck on one concept here, <laughs> look out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to get clock time out and go, enough, next point. I think you are. I, th I think maybe you are. You're going to have yeah. to like, like bang a gavel or something. Yes, or something. Thanks, guys, for having Thank this you. chat. I think... Um, no, it's good. And um, I look forward to the next part to get through Chapter 4. So you're leaving us now with this surface tension. <laughs> yes. Yes, this oh a pun, a pun, Pete. Almost. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you. And thank everyone. And thanks everyone for listening. And we look forward to your company for part two of chapter four in our next podcast.